when i was running in the hotel i used to think i knew everything i realized that i knew i knew nothing and then i had to learn everything so it was an absolutely invigorating kind of experience i wasn't getting any younger and i was thinking that you know if i don't get into something i don't know whether i would succeed or i would fail so i want to take the doubt out i didn't want to have any regrets i don't like to go and second guess myself and that kind of puts things at ease because we get into execution mode very very quickly hi i'm amanda kuwa and this is one more scoop here we're sitting down with southeast asia's top founders executives and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys and find out what really happens behind the scenes Today I'm speaking with Amit Sabarwal. He's the founder and CEO of Red Doors, Southeast Asia's largest and fastest growing online hotel management and booking platform. He began his career in the traditional hospitality industry at notable hotels across India. Then he joined the travel tech scene with India's largest online travel company, makemytrip.com, where he was chief business officer. In this role, he played a key part in the leadership team that shaped the company, growing it to the IPO stage in three years and getting listed on Nasdaq in 2010 with 85,000 properties globally. Founded in 2015, Red Doors has grown into a regional powerhouse with operations in Singapore, Indonesia, and the Philippines, with a vision to build the region's leading new generation multi-brand accommodations platform. Hi Amit, so nice to meet you today and I'm so excited to speak with you. I really wanted to ask you a few questions about yourself. I've seen Red Doors all over the place. I'm actually based in the Philippines. So, I think the first question I have about you is could you tell me about your childhood? Where did you grow up? Hi Amanda. I spent the first 40 years of my life pretty much in India. I grew up in a city called New Delhi, which is the capital of India, and and that's where I I, I did all my schooling. and then i did my college uh, and continued to be in uh, in new delhi in that area pretty much till the time i left uh, india for singapore what was your childhood like what were your parents doing and what kind of things would be interesting to you as a child yeah well i think uh, it was a fairly normal childhood my dad was in the indian navy so he was a defense guy and my mom she used to just look after us because we were two boys and quite a handful uh, my mother was uh, also studying to be a lawyer and um, the indian navy at that time didn't pay too much so my dad took retirement in between and went off to captain a merchant navy ship and a series of contracts which was like pretty much 10 months on on the ship two months at home and so we had long periods of time when he was not there uh, it was fun it was i went to a decent school i was a decent enough student uh, it was an all boys school which was kind of unfortunate uh, in hindsight uh, but it was just regular childhood yeah, nothing extraordinary and what kind of sort of influence did that have on you having a dad who wasn't there all the time because of work and then your mom i guess she was taking care of you guys most of the time but she was also studying to be a lawyer yeah so she she was had a strong influence right 
she's a really really iron lady so she had a strong influence on the family and also uh, was a prime pusher uh, or a prime mover for my dad to kind of move to the merchant navy and make more money uh, we had more money to spend than average because of that uh, so so it was it was great but when my dad used to come back home it was absolutely phenomenal right because he was the soft guy really chilled out and uh, he would be the nice guy when my mother had the tough job of being the the bad person in the relationship mm. and what was your relationship like with your brother were you the older sibling the younger sibling uh, no he was older to me uh, he was also smarter than me academically and uh, he you know never used to consider me as anybody uh great at that time right you know how elder brothers are right he was happy in his own world his own friends his own reading he used to read a lot and he would just kind of ignore or tolerate the younger brother which is me he went into the indian navy and therefore he went to the national defense academy uh, to become an officer in the indian navy so pretty much to follow my father's footsteps uh, when he was about 17 he left home and we were sharing a room and i was ecstatic i said oh my god it's gone thank god i get the room to myself and good riddance yeah for a while you know how the siblings are yeah and then obviously as time went by yeah he would come home and then you know one would miss him and his importance was uh, was felt then i continued to do my college which is pretty much hotel management so i went to catering school uh, while he became commissioned as an indian uh, indian navy officer so yeah that's the relationship was still still uh, quite close to him i'm going diving with him in cebu in fact on friday oh wow uh, so i'm going to be going to malapuska island yeah i hope i pronounced it right and I, um, sure. <laughs> there's a species of of yeah <laughs> treasure sharks there and that's a great species the only place you can really find them easily And so I'm going diving with him so he and I are still close yeah in uh, in other words Are you going there specifically to see those sharks That is correct Oh okay specifically so it is a 4 hour drive from Cebu airport and then another I think an hour by boat or something like that to reach this island and then from there apparently these beautiful sharks are available and they have a huge tail fin and that's the distinctive feature which which they have are you interested in sharks are you interested in i guess like aquatic animals in general aquatic animals in general new things if i can come up with to see i'm always excited i think the large big animal i saw was the mola mola which is a the sunfish uh, it's very difficult comes out once a year pretty much from the depths of the sea So I try to chase and see these newer animals you turtles and you know fish etc are pretty much common in uh, in many dives and do you keep fish as well or aquatic animals or do you, do you just like diving to to see them <laughs> My son he, he had a turtle and oh, okay. uh, then he went off to college and then there was no need to take care of the turtle and then we finally gave the turtle away to another family who could take care of uh, and this another family small chinese family small little kids extremely excited they renamed the turtle uh, lucky 
Yeah. And so so that that went off well, but otherwise we don't have any fish or animals that aquatic animals home. We have a cat and a dog. Oh, okay. Uh, but that's different. So the aquatic animals are mostly reserved for, I guess, the diving then. For the diving, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you know, Southeast Asia is absolutely phenomenal for diving. I want to make uh, the most and the best use of my time here. And I'm also curious, you mentioned that you, well, went into hotel management for university. I was wondering what influenced you to do so, because it's very different from the path that your dad and your brother took. Was it on purpose to, you know, take a very different path from your sibling and your father? I know that there are some younger brothers and sisters who like to really take a very different path. Yeah. I think uh, circumstances changed. My father uh, got unwell, uh, and my brother uh, was off to the for to the to the navy. Pretty much, I think going for a five or four or five year training program. So during that period of time, I had to make a choice whether I would go into, a, into after school, go into a place where I could get a job right after my three years, or persevere into academics, do a graduation, then do a post-graduation, and then get into get into the work stream. And I think that time it just seemed prudent from a family standpoint to, you know, be free and, and self-sufficient at the soonest possible moment. And it was a it was a new industry that time and a new course. So I just thought. And it was a different world. Uh, uh, it was uh, options were limited. Knowledge was also limited. Uh, and so I kind of stumbled into the course and then have been there as a career hotelier for many, many years. And then when you were taking the course, what did you think you would do after you graduated? Did you think you would work for a hotel? Did you always have a goal of maybe starting your own hotel? No, I think the initial thing was to uh, get some uh, bacon in mm. and therefore uh, I was to work in a hotel and uh, and that's what I did right pretty much so basically you picked the sort of course that would help you get a job quicker and easier and I guess more, more guaranteed yes. salary and then not really thinking too much yes. on the long term of like what will I do in the hotel industry it's more of like the practical choice it was a practical choice I kind of stumbled into what I did and then I continued and, you know, improvised from there on. And what was it like um, starting out in hospitality? You said it was a new industry and also a new course. Yeah, it's a crazy industry. It pays like shit. And then make sure that you have many, many hours and no weekends and just like a crazy uh, industry. Almost uh, it exploits, it used to, its employees. And therefore, very early in, in my in my hotel piece, I figured out, like, listen, I'm not going to be blue-collar because this is going to be a really terrible job. And so within the hotels, there was sales and marketing. So that was like more white-collared, so to say, because that had regular hours. And so I did sales and marketing. And then I kind of grew to be the sales and marketing director of a hotel company uh, in India. And uh, so that's the path I took. So I didn't go into the operational side of things simply because it just didn't make any sense to me. So in a sense, I guess you sort of followed the money in the earlier stages of your career then? Yeah, I just thought that during that, during my earlier stages of my career, 
I needed to see more of life than just be in an operational kind of role. Mm. And sales and marketing at that time just seemed to be that that path because we had the opportunity to meet many people from many walks of life, senior folks, successful business leaders, successful tour operators. It was just a better vision. More exciting for you as well. It was because it was, at least it was in the early days, was intellectually more, uh, more stimulating than, than doing, you know, uh, front office or being a chef uh, for me personally. And then, so you spent a few years in the, I guess, traditional hotel industry. What was your sentiment of it like? I think you mentioned before you slowly realized or quickly realized, I, I think you mentioned it was quick, that the hours were not great. The pay was not great. So did you plan on leaving the industry? So I just got into bigger, better jobs, bigger, better hotels and continuing the industry till uh, till I moved industries completely mm. and joined Make My Trip. So do you make my trip is an online travel company. I joined them in 2005, uh, got out of uh, college in 1991. So I spent many years in uh, in the hotel industry. And then when I was sales and marketing director for, for the Park Hotels, which is like the Indian design boutique hotel chain, I realized that, you know, there is more to life, that I'm missing out on something. And, and that's the time I joined Make My Trip, which was just about starting off. In India and in people who follow the space, it's an incredibly successful story. We IPO'd on NASDAQ in 2010. I was looking after the hotel business and it was a, a bumper IPO for an Indian company. And then that was the first exposure to online travel. I think I read that it was the first IPO by an Indian company since like 2006. So I guess it was a big deal, especially because it was more of an online company as well because it was online travel industry. Yeah, it was a big deal at that time because the internet was very nascent mm. and uh, the way the company executed on its vision and then IPO was like uh, very, very impressive. So you were there, I think, for eight years, right? Until including like, yeah, the US IPO years, yes. in 2010, you mentioned? 2010. That's a phenomenal experience. If not, somebody has not gone through that. It's definitely a once in a lifetime worth doing it. So we listed on NASDAQ. I was chief business officer for Make My Trip. And then after the listing, I decided to uh, work with the company out of Singapore and uh, look after international markets for, for Make My Trip. So how did you get into the role at Make My Trip? I think... You mentioned that you were at a time where you wanted to see where there could be more to life outside of the travel industry you were in. Did you view us Make My Trip as the same industry or a very different industry? But it was very different because I was in traditional hotels. I used to wear a suit and had a car and a driver and, you know, had black polished shoes and different ties for different days, kind of a dress sense. And then I kind of moved to, to an online travel company, which is completely casual. I've never worn a tie since I left the hotel industry. I just worn it once on the day of the Make My Trip IPO because uh, that was needed. And that was great because after many, many years of uh, wearing a tie, I never wore a tie. Mm -hmm. So I saw it as a completely different industry. And because it was starting off, Make My Trip thought that since I was a hotelier, 
I could run their hotels line of business or set up their hotels or contract hotels for them. And it was a very new experience for me and it was a very new experience for them. But it's just that, you know, we were successful. I was successful in my roles and I did various roles in Make My Trip. And I kind of uh, worked hand in hand to make sure that that we had the most successful, the largest hotel business as a line of business amongst all the online travel agents uh, out of India. And therefore, then that kind of gave me the experience, gave me the exposure and cemented my position. And then when Make My Trip became a public company, now NASDAQ listed billion dollar company, I was already that at that leadership level. So you also grew with the company. Yeah, absolutely. So I was wondering, how did you even land the role for Make My Trip? Did you find the role or did they find you? No, no, I found the role, I think, uh, through a headhunter because now I had got frustrated, right? And then the reason for the frustration in the hotel industry was that the realization came that I had pretty much reached the peak of uh, my learning in the, yeah. in that hotel space. And it would be more of the same. Uh, and there's no excitement left. So I said, oh, man, I need to get out of here. And then I started finding, I would imagine through a headhunter or something online. And nobody knew Make My Trip. And it, yeah. everybody thought I was a crazy guy because, you know, the Park Hotel was super ex, uh, established, traditional, a solid company, been there for many, many years. Great place to work, you know. They sent me to uh, the United States, Cornell, to study. And they were just absolutely beautiful employers. And so everybody thought, like, this guy's established, good job, great company. I mean, what's wrong with him? And then yeah. Make My Trip, nobody knew what Make My Trip. And it was like out of a, I won't say a garage, but it was like in out of a small, small office in like the irregular part of Delhi. Not like those fancy buildings, yeah? Like, you know, yeah. small buildings. Not what you would expect from a hotel company. Yeah, not what you'd expect from a, a, a tech company. Yes. And then, but I said, okay, yeah, let's, we'll see it. We'll, we'll figure it out. I took a leap of faith. Uh, I liked um, the uh, the founder, Deep, just kind of worked out. So what made you say yes? So I guess nobody really knew about them. What interested you in taking the role? And I guess the founder played a part in it. I guess what about the founder made you interested in working with them? Yeah. So I think it was something new. It was something uh, business of the future. It was, it was a business which I was not familiar with. So I thought that I had a great learning curve. I didn't want to be like a middle-aged settled guy just waiting to go through the politics of office and get hope to get uh, on the other side safe and sound. So I didn't want that kind of life. I was happy to take a risk. My, and my wife and my father, and they all thought that these guys are completely gone nuts. But the fact that it was a new age company, the fact that it was something exciting into the future, it kind of lent into my hotel experience, but not really. Uh, and then, yeah, and uh, Deep, who's the founder, had this had a nice vision. Let's say, I think, uh, a combination of all that. And so you spent a lot of years there. And I think it's a very special thing, as you mentioned, to join a company and really grow with them until IPO. Do you have any either crazy or fulfilling stories from your time there at Make My Trip? Oh. It was many. I mean, I will take the full hour if I tell you the stories. But in a nutshell, 
it was a story it was a company where we would work very hard and we would party even harder we would have like long hours of work and even longer hours of drinking we would do have a lot of fun we would do a lot of travel a lot of excursions some low cost some more expensive depend on how, when the company got funded but it was a remarkable experience life changing experience for anybody uh and anybody who can be through that at that stage of their life you know it kind of invigorated me taught me so many things when i was running in the hotel i used to think i knew everything in my sphere of things when i got out into the make my trip side of world of the world i realized that i knew i knew nothing and then i had to learn everything so it was an absolutely invigorating kind of experience and then we went uh, we got into fights with people in the train we got drunk we just it was a crazy crazy setup uh, early stage but that helped build a very cohesive culture that culture is what really kicked the the backside of all competition and then that culture is what made us ipo in 2010 so yeah great company but like lots of lots of crazy stuff and how do you scale with the company i think there are also lots of people who join a company very yeah. early but it's hard to i guess grow yourself especially in line with all of the many people maybe even the even hundreds of people who are joining and it's also harder to go up the ranks i guess as fast as maybe you did so how do you think you did yeah. that was it a specific mindset were you doing any specific yeah. i don't know strategies yeah no i think we like we i did wasn't doing any specific strategies but in hindsight and i see some really capable colleagues who joined who couldn't scale with the company i think a few things right one attitude i always started to my own company i always had a keen sense of confidentiality or the information which was provided to me during the course of my work so i was always more serious about getting the company to where it wanted to go i was also very very serious about making sure that whatever i was running and i had ran various lines of business at various times would be contributing to the overall success of uh, of midpoint trip and you know i had a good work ethic i made sure that uh, my team members were also like working and we were like delivering financial results most of the times we had a successful tenure at make my trip i think a combination of all that the hotel business was uh, a critical part of any online travel agency strategy in emerging markets like india indonesia it's more difficult kind of put together and i had you know put that piece together so there was some amount of credibility there also so yeah it's it's tough you're absolutely right most people and i can see it in my own company right uh within red doors people have been with us for 5 6 years now some people have scaled incredibly well and then some people are have not right and then you left the company in 2013 about 3 years after the ipo when did you know it was time to leave yeah so same thing yeah when i after the ipo i came to singapore it was a great life now i was cxo of like a billion dollar company 
uh, and expert salary, expert, uh, we had to, we were doing stuff in the international markets out of Asia. But the knowing sense of discontentment was coming in again. That, listen, I've done that. I'm doing more of the same. The company had also transformed, right? From this really tight-knit startup became a large kind of MNC. And it brings, brought its own set of issues with that. But predominantly, if it was a personal decision, I was thinking that, listen, I love to make my entrepreneurial journey. But being entrepreneurial and being an entrepreneur are two different things. And do I have it in me or not? And I wasn't getting any younger. And I was thinking that, you know, if I don't get into something, I don't know whether I would succeed or I would fail. So I want to take the doubt out. I didn't want to have any regrets. And so one fine day, I just decided to call it quits. Do you think it was a slow decision? Or do you think it was easier for you to to say like, okay, yes, I think I need to start something of my own? It was building up within me for a few quarters or a few weeks. But I, as a person, when I get into decision-making, it, sometimes it takes me a while for decisions to come. But when I take a decision, then I execute and I'm very, I wouldn't say ruthless, but I just then execute it. Right. Then I have no regrets on those decisions. So I would kind of mull over, mull over, mull over. But then once I take the decision, then I just just decided to do it. And that just decided to do it happened within hours. And that that boiling over process, I mean, took a few weeks. Got it. And then I think you ended your time in 2013, but then you started Red Doors in 2015. What happened in that two-year gap? Were you trying other kinds yeah, of businesses? No. <laughs> So I ended in end of 2013. So pretty much 2013 was make my trip. And then early 2014, I had started uh, the company, which is Commeasure. And then we were experimenting because here's the thought, right? I wanted to solve the problems of the little hotel, the small hotel owner. And I want to do it in Southeast Asia because, you know, I just thought that there's a big opportunity here. And I was experimenting... Uh, on what I should be doing, we should be doing, what kind of product is going to fit with the hotel uh, and make their life easier. And we started off with a B2B product. Okay. The B2B product was a tech, uh, so like a solution for small hotels. And then we realized that, you know, and we had 450 hotels who were using that by the time we realized that, listen, it's a great small business, but now it's going to scale into something substantially mm-hmm. larger. And so then we decided to go and go into Indonesia because we realized that the small hotelier not only wanted the tech, but they also wanted everything else to be uh, sorted out for him, including giving him the brand, giving him the um, the know-how and giving him the tech. Or yeah. if you're only giving him the tech. So it's like if I give you or give somebody Microsoft Excel, mm-hmm. You know, some people use it. Some people don't know use it at all. Some people use it like well, but the power users can really extract value out of it. Yeah. And then most of our hotel owners couldn't extract value out of the software we gave them. So then we said, okay, maybe we should do something like Red Doors, where we brand and do everything for hotel. And therefore, Red Doors got launched in 2015. Oh, okay. And then how did you come up with the idea for this, you know, 2015 version? Was it 
one of the two ideas you had in 2014? Or was it like something you ended up learning from your initial B2B model you mentioned earlier with just the tech? Yeah, 2014, B2B model. I think the vision was to solve small hotel problem. Mm. The the realization that we are partly solving the small hotels problem, but this is not going to scale. This is not going to make money uh, at, at a scale which you wanted. I, I definitely didn't want a small business. SME kind of business. Mm. I wanted to create a big company. I still want to create a much bigger company. I think, you know, we have a long way to go. And so that there was a disconnect between what we were doing and the vision. Got it. Okay. And therefore, I knew it wasn't working. And so I, I had taken the first investment from uh, Jungle Ventures that time. And then I told them, hey, listen, guys, I think it's a good idea if we do B2C and we do Indonesia rather than B2B. And so that's what I did. Okay. So it wasn't like you were pondering two ideas and you went with the first one and then it didn't work and you went with the second one. It was more of like a you went with an initial idea and then you built up on it and pivoted to the second idea. Yeah. That wasn't scaling. Got it. Okay. And then how did you pick Indonesia among all of the markets in Southeast Asia? Oh, it, it, it was my thesis even in Make My Trip that Make My Trip should be looking at in, uh, Indonesia as a market. So we were looking at some markets, international expand and so on and so forth. But you know how Indian companies do very well in India. Yeah. And then uh, it's it's difficult to to scale in other markets. So the the I couldn't convince folks that, Indonesia was source market or the origin destination market for us. And then I saw the potential of Indonesia as the largest economy in Southeast Asia, like that, 220 million that time people. And uh, I thought it's a perfect market for us. Lots of small fragmented hotels, younger, aspirational kind of population. And uh, people were... Uh, I mean, it's not the same country as it is today. Today, uh, Indonesia is like far more progress, modern, and a lot of tech savvy than it was. So the the potential of disruption was there. So that's why Indonesia. Do you remember some early mistakes you made in the first one to two years you were running Red Doors? We started off by going into apartments and then we rented out the apartments where we were staying in. So we went to Indonesia went uh, rented some apartments and then started scaling that and so as long as there were one or two apartments the building was fine i think we're naive to think that you know once we have 30 apartments in a building that the building management is not going to come and you know hold us accountable or to shut us down and so just that's what happened that you know when we, our business was like really taking off initially and we said oh my god we had the product market fit what a great idea we were uh, we were on a high. We got shut down. All our supply one day one day went away. So that was like a crazy crazy time, huge mistake or huge setback rather. And we had several setbacks yeah, as you would imagine. But I think what we we have the tendency to bounce back very quickly. Took us a couple of days to you know moan and groan about it, and then we said, hey man, let's just get on with it now. The learning here is that commercially run establishments is the focus. You have to go after hotels. 
Because these hotels is the job of the hotel is, is to host customers. The job of you know the service apartments is not to have like so many daily customers coming in. And so we then went back to the drawing board, started focusing on the hotels, and then built the business one hotel at a time. We have three thousand six hundred hotel under our franchise today. And then I was wondering, like the pandemic was a huge thing. I'm sure you know, but coming out of the COVID pandemic, have you guys adjusted your strategies a lot, or do you think you've been keeping to the same sort of business models? No, I think uh, it's a it's a different way of thinking, the different way of operating. We are like far more profitability focused right now, revenue focused. So we move from growth focus to survival focus to revenue focus to profitability focus. And all this happened between 2020 and 2023. So it was a crazy time. You know, we many people didn't know whether we were coming or going because of the rapid change of what was happening on external environment. But right now, after all that, we are a profitability focused organization. That means our goal is to be profitable by end of this year. And would you say that the pandemic was maybe the hardest time of your business? Or would you actually say there were more difficult times? I think the pandemic was hard for a couple of reasons. One, that uh, it was bad for hospitality. And also it was bad for our employees because they had, you know, I mean, we lost uh, one of our senior colleagues. The uncertainty of whether people are going to even have or going to live. And there was just so much of lack of information, panic, just different sources of information, that uncertainty of the macros and the uncertainty of the business put together was like a, a pretty tough time. In hindsight, and we were we, we came out of it, we are the battle-hardened company, been there, done that, nothing really troubles us now. And I think after all these years, I think you've already been at Red Doors almost the same length of time you were at um, Make My Trip. And you've had your own different, I guess, stages as a founder, from an early stage founder to a later stage founder. Do you still feel imposter syndrome today at your level, given all your experiences? Mm, I don't. Actually, I don't feel the imposter syndrome at all. But yes, we've seen different stages of the business and each stage requires a different level of adaptation and different mindset, a different pace sometimes. But I don't think I have imposter syndrome kind of uh, feelings. I think like most founders would experience um, well imposter syndrome. So how do you feel like you have been able to develop maybe your mindset or your way of working to help, you know, avoid that experience? Because I think it's a great thing to not have that worry. Yeah, well, I don't, I think I worry before I take decisions. I don't worry after I take decisions. Mm -hmm. So that's one part of it. So once I've done something, after I thought it was the best decision under those circumstances, I don't like to go and second guess myself. And that kind of puts things at ease because we get into execution mode very, very quickly. Mm. We could waffle around. I have a tendency to waffle around sometimes before the decision is made. But once it's made, it's like execute, execute, and then no regrets. Mm. I think that's the kind of culture also within the company which we build. 
Yeah, it is what it is. Yeah, some of it comes by experience, I guess. I, I'm not the you know one of the younger founders. I'm pretty, generally I'm the oldest guy in the group. If there is a like a founders kind of meet, etc. So I guess if you've been around the block a few times, it also helps. Hmm. And what would you say was the most difficult time for you during Red Doors, apart from the pandemic? So apart from the pandemic. We had, at, at times, we were like against a very, very well-funded, multi-billion dollar funded competitor. And then us pushing them back and pushing them back successfully to create our own success story with the with a fraction of the monies available, just by resilience and grit, I think is one of the memorable things. But at that moment, when we are going and fighting that, it was a tough fight. And also, there was a huge amount of psychological warfare kind of situation also. With every day, we had new headlines coming in in Indonesia, which is our core market, that, oh, these guys are going to invest so much money. And part of the strategy was to try and scare other investors and scare hotels. And this But yeah, we don't get bullied easily. Yeah. So, yeah. so, but it was tough at that time when we were looking at, you know, survival and kicking back. And fighting back and then the pandemic, right? So yeah, these are two tough, really tough periods. How did you keep your teams motivated during a time like that? Like when you have a big competitor coming up and the psychological warfare is even hitting the the news, right? Yeah. And then hiring, they're trying to hire up people and trying to take our hotels and stuff. So I think we we have to kind of align people to a larger vision and they have to be aligned to that vision. Uh, and very clear on what we are doing. I think once you achieve that, it gets easier. Uh, I, we are not the best paying company. We are not the, you know, the, the the sexiest company on the block. But we have like really, really good, solid core group of employees who've been with us to thick and thin, and then and have are like a very closely knit, battle hardened group. Yeah, I mean it's like. Uh, being in a war together once you I mean you're friends for life in a way so having the team and aligning them to a, a, a vision and trying to hire right I think would be a good uh, secret sauce so sort of breaking it down I think part of it goes to keeping some of your core team members who have been with you through thick and thin and I guess them influencing the rest of the team but also clearly communicating the the vision you guys have how do you Communicate that vision with your team. So I think initially we uh, start before employees get hired. The older guys, you don't need to do it. Yeah, I mean, you just need to reiterate. They're already indoctrinated, so to say. But new employees who come in, we try to send them like our manifesto before they join. Then after they join, we like to kind of uh, take them through uh, induction program. It kind of tells them what uh, what is expected. And uh, then you have to walk the talk. So it's monkey see, monkey do. I think we are like, there are some like signals people pick up very quickly. Uh, like no PowerPoints and red dots. It's all about numbers or it's all about text. Don't hide behind like uh, stuff, uh, which is just like more colorful than needed. And just the ability to get the job done becomes a key uh, attribute in people who get promoted. So you have then you come up with a situation where 
people walk into a culture where it's not ruthless, but it is result-oriented. So when you two, two things happen, either people blend in well into the culture or say that, hey, man, listen, I was here to do a, a cool job, startup type, you know, grow my hair, you know, come and sit to chat. And that's not Red Doors. Then they look at alternate uh, employment. Right. And like talking about the work and the kind of culture you guys have, I think now I'm curious about what you're like at work. What does a, I guess there's no typical day, but could you walk us through a day in your life? Um, starting yeah. from when you wake up to when you end work? Yeah, no, so different days. But by and large, I'm an early morning person. I try to wake up early. I not try to, I just wake up early in the morning. I like to make my first cup of coffee myself. I like to grind the beans in a grinder slowly. And then have my second cup. And that's my, you know, that keeps me fired up. So a typical day is... uh, a lot of meetings, and it depends on which week, right? We try to focus all our meetings in one week of the of the month. So, uh, a lot of meetings, a lot of reviews, and then also reviews in certain aspects, right? So, I think I have the ability to zoom in, get hands on, and then also zoom out and be completely hands off. And uh, so, and then my typical management style is like management by exception. You know, I don't like to micromanage people. Unlisten until I have to go deep into solving some issue. And then I, I by and large, I let people be, let them do their stuff. Uh, but if there's like lack of performance or period of time, then I can go down hard on people too. So, and, and, and you know, the, the uh, large part of this the CEO's job also is to sign approvals, do bank payment releases, like really mundane. Uh, and and that is uh, the, that is also you know something you have to do. Investor relations, say pitches to new investors, uh, you know that kind of stuff. Go to conferences, represent the company, put the word out. All that also is part of the job. So it's just it's not one typical day. Got it. And you know you have a huge company with tons of people, and I I think you have the ability to bring in experts and people much smarter than yourself. And just like how you scaled, you know, in your role at Make My Trip, as the company has grown, where do you find that you are able to provide the biggest value to, to Red Doors or your team members? Yeah, I think that's a great question, right? I think the greatest value is to give like clear direction at the right time. Give movement or changes in the direction of the ship according to what I and I, my colleagues leadership thinks is going to be important for the success of the company. So I think the value continues to be of the change maker and the direction giver and the strong leadership. And strong leadership means like unpopular decisions also have to be taken. So I think that's the real value. I think the way we continue to look at Red Doors and next year we are looking at being a profitable company. But then for us, being a profitable company at our scale in my mind is still a small company and then I I guess the biggest value would be to after the milestone of profitability how do we take the company to the next level of growth in a constrained financial environment and then take it to 
this logical conclusion. First, it would be an IPO. It could be whatever, but hopefully an IPO. And I'm sure there's a lot of stress that comes with your job, right? But what part of the business keeps you up at night the most or what aspect of the business or so, aspect you know, of after, your role? Yeah, yeah. After being through this uh, the pandemic and every day getting new bad news, uh, I become became fairly battle-hardened and nothing really bothers me and I can go to sleep peacefully regardless of what is happening in the world because, you know, it was like... Uh, a new challenge every day. If you've been on the battlefield, soldiers go to sleep. They don't care about the about the shootings which are happening. I think what, the, what worries me now is that I don't want to get stuck in the rut of being a small profitable company because that is something which which is could be really comfortable. Because then what the hell, right? It's a good good enough outcome or temporary holding response. Uh, but that's a, that is something which would like really, really be an unsatisfactory situation. So that's what keeps me up. Like, how do I take this company now from being this kind of setup? So, and and when you say this setup means uh, I'm doing little view into a future, like a quarter or two later, like profitable, growing at twenty percent, thirty percent year on year, core team. And processes all set. Automation will make things easier. So no much headcount addition. Leadership team is all set. So it it is at at that stage of of being efficiently run. But then so so what, right? That's what I think. So what? Like profitability shouldn't be the goal. It's just a milestone along the way, I guess. It's a small milestone. Yeah, it's a small milestone for us. It's a small milestone because the way I look at it is that. Every guy who sells tomatoes in the street of Manila is a profitable business. Yeah. Every guy who sells cigarettes in Indonesia or or has a has a noodle cart is a profitable business, and that cannot be like the outcome. And it's not as fair on the on our uh, stakeholders and shareholders who have invested for a for a larger kind of a vision, but. If you read the news and say what's happening with the price of capital and the way debt is paying returns, it is it is a tough situation from the capital market standpoint. So it's also a comfortable holding response till the capital markets improve. So from that point of view, it's a happy position to be in. As long as it's a temporary position. As long as a temporary position and I don't want to get complacent and I want to make sure that none of us get complacent in this in this role. Because complacency sets in very easily. I I, I have noticed this in my in my uh in my various career roles. That complacency, a guy or a person or a lady who was like super, super efficient, like in their previous roles, could be like really complacent and non-performing in the next role. So we have to guard against that. But being conscious of this particular thing helps us. And I was wondering, like, outside of work, what are the things that help keep you sane? I guess one of them is diving. But what are the other things yeah. you do outside of work to help you? Because being a founder like isn't your entire life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I like to I like to do different things, but I definitely like to play tennis. 
I, in fact, uh, I like to do yoga, but I have not been doing yoga, which is kind of strange, right? I like to, but I've just been into a rut. I think it's the most remarkable uh, exercise routine possible. It looks easy, but it's like really, really tough, but it's really good for the mind. Uh, so I like to do physical stuff. And that helps me in my official work also. I used to read a lot, but I don't know what's happened. I just can't read anymore, which is kind of weird, right? Like my attention span, I guess it's all all my bits and bytes get used up in work or or whatever. Like when I when the reading, I used to read a lot when I was like working. But now I just want to just, you know, put something in my ears and watch maybe something mindless mm. and knock off to sleep. Yeah. So yeah. What did you used to read before? I actually feel the same with the reading. My attention span yeah. is just dwindled. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, I think Instagram also is, is to blame. Uh, yeah, like all kinds of fiction, you know, earlier days, like uh, when I was growing up, my dad had a lot of Westerns, you know, Westerns, and then uh, Robert Ludlum kind of books. And then as I grew kind of older, some, some, some Japanese writers, yeah, all kind. Murakami was my favorite author of all really? times. Which book? Yeah, it's just like, yeah, all, actually all of them. All, all of them, I just, each one was better than the other. The first one, Kafka in the, on the shore, was it? Yeah. Kafka on the shore, the first mm-hmm. one, uh, which I read. And then like, oh, I read all of them. His ability to transform from like one dimension of life to the other dimension seamlessly it's like completely bizarre it makes no sense but the way he kind of weaves that right i just found him absolutely fascinating and i was kind of disappointed that he hasn't got the nobel prize yet so so his kind of books yeah like so all kinds of books but generally avoid heavy reading yeah yeah i don't know if you if you know salman rushdie got into a controversy with satanic verses it's a book, Salman Rushdie, is a sitting verses. You can look it up. Yeah, yeah definitely will. Your time. And then um, I said, okay, I must read this book. It's so so infamous. And three or four pages later, I said, my God, this is the driest book I've read in any <laughs> all time. So I try to keep like leading, reading light or used to keeping light and and chill. I'm guessing the the kinds of writing you like are the ones that feel like you're in another place, like that kind of drift you away from reality. I guess that's what Murakami's books kind of are like. At that time, yes. Yes, at that yes. time, for sure. Yeah, for sure. If I like, come to movies, which I would watch on, on rare occasion, I'd like to surprisingly watch rom-coms kind of movies, right? Which is completely mindless. No suspense, no uh, crazy stress kind of movies. Because, you know, I have enough of that drama happening in my life in real life. Right. So I like to watch like completely mindless uh, kind of semi-predictable, kind of semi-predictable <laughs> happy, happy, nice ending, you know, kind of movies. Right. Okay, this, this brings me down to my last two questions. One of them is, what's the biggest personal sacrifice you've had to make while running red doors. This could be a personal sacrifice in whatever way you define it. Yeah. I think uh, when we started off, right, we had a lifestyle because now we were like expert salary CXO. 
my wife would stop working. Kids were in international school, but I was in Singapore. Yeah. Expensive place, right? So from do, doing that kind of salary to zero, I think that was a huge uh, sacrifice, more from the family side than from mine. But they all adapted. You know, kids got scholarship. My daughter went to Bocconi on full scholarship. My wife started working for Standard Chartered Banks where she worked 10 years. And she started getting the bacon home because I could. I was getting nothing. I literally initially, I think that was a huge sacrifice. And then being not available sometimes, like mentally not available for the family during tougher times, uh, was also like uh, a personal sacrifice. But I think they paid the price because I went off to pursue my dream. Yeah. Of, uh, of building a startup, for better or for worse. Uh, but I kind of try to make sure that it wasn't like I didn't put them uh, in peril financially. Uh, and because I make my trip and from a stage of life, make my trip at IPO. So I had a little money from that IPO. So I try to make sure that that was kind of okay. But uh, but they had to sacrifice a lot in terms of their lifestyle. So I think they made the sacrifices. I was like pursuing my startup founder kind of uh, dream. Was it difficult to convince them um, to sort of adapt, I guess? So I, so I, I got married when I was 25 uh, and my wife was 21. So she's known me more years now as my wife than she's been on planet Earth. So there's a good understanding from her side. And then she kind of saw me getting into a brooding, unhappy state. Yeah, I was stuck, right? How, what happens when you... You know, when, when you feel like you are not like happy in a particular situation and but the the on the other hand like financially it's you cannot uh it's not an easy decision to make she could kind of understand that and therefore she let me go so a large part of the success goes to her i mean kids followed kids are extremely and my daughter and my son they're extremely enterprising and they they've said okay we figured it out because they had immense faith in my ability to bring them wherever I, you know, to get, they weren't worried. I mean, let me put it this way. Mm. Okay, that's awesome. And the last question I have is a question I ask every guest we have on One More Scoop, and that is, outside of work, what's one thing that you want to achieve in your personal life? And there's no strict timeline for this, whether it's a goal you want to achieve in five months, five years, or 50. It might sound like really, really... Uh, Miss Universe kind of answer, but it's true. I really want to help people who are underprivileged. And and, and I just, uh, it's not like the clear definition of like just cutting a check to a poor people's foundation. It's somewhere where I can make a direct impact. And, you know, I have a network and I have uh, a, a vision and I've, you know, built something for better or for worse. And I want to put all those things into a creating an enterprise which would help like a lot of people. There's something that I feel like I haven't given enough time or or thought to, but it's my wish list. It's my desire uh, to to make an impact. And my impact has to be like low, low key, quiet, under the radar, but meaningful impact. I'm letting. In other words, I'm not looking at glory for myself. You know, we had, in, when I was in the hotel industry and every World Environment Day, we would go and put 
two trees and take a picture and send to the press. And that's the kind of stuff which I don't want to do. I just want to make like a real impact. Whether they know that's from you or not. Yeah, I don't care. Honestly, it doesn't matter to me. Well, I guess this podcast will keep you accountable and we can always check in. (laughs) (laughs) That will be great. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Avid. It was so nice to get to know you a bit more and get to know your experiences throughout the time that you've been building Red Doors. I'm really lucky and really thankful you took the time to speak with me. And I'm sure anybody else who's listening will find as much value in it as I did. Thank you. Thank you, Amanda. You have a good one. Yeah.